tables there. I have uh, one of the tracks. They're always sitting over there, but sometimes I think if I put it on the table, uh, if you want, want, if everybody wants one, which would be great that you would use in the next couple weeks, go grab one. But this search track is a great track. Uh, it's visual. It shows the separation between God and man. And it's probably one of the best outlines of the gospel. And so that's there. Take it, but don't take it and use it as a coaster. Don't take it and lose it in the backseat of your car. Take it and use it and hand it to a lost person. Say, hey, as a friend, I'd like to give you some good news. Would you read this? And could we talk about it? And you'll be surprised at what God can do. All right, I'm gonna, I, I just need God's help. Some, some Sundays you just want God's help more than others. And, and uh, this is a Sunday where uh, I just kind of feel opposition to, to uh, what I need to do today. So would you join with me and, and pray with me and ask for God's Spirit to flow through? We have some, uh, some arguments to go through from uh, inclusivists. Some of you are new. Don't be overwhelmed. You're okay. Uh, we're in the midst of this study. If you're a little lost, you ought to be if you're new. Uh, but we'll catch you up. And uh, to be quite honest with you, what we're going to study this morning is so good at Christmas time. Because Christmas is more than, I, I love the holidays, I love the music. I'm like Kirk, I can start as early as possible. But you know, it's about God entering into history to save a fallen race and to spread that news far and wide. And, uh, and so really what we're studying is really the heart and soul of Christmas. And so it may not seem very Christmassy, but in fact it is the true message of Christmas, that Christ is the only way of salvation to a lost and dying world. And um, even as you think about the Christmas story, the wise men, God took these wise men who were far in the east, Gentiles, pagans, and he gave them supernatural revelation through the star in the heavens, and led them by a supernatural movement of that star right to the place where the Christ child was living. That is exclusivism. That is what we've been studying. That is that he's going to move heaven and earth to get lost people to believe in the one person, the only person who's the means of salvation. So the whole wise men story, is, is, is argument against what inclusivists say, because otherwise God would have left them out there in the East to have a sincere faith, a, gen, a general belief in a generic God, and that's okay. Sooner or later, they'll hear about Jesus. No, He brought them to Him. So let's pray. Father, I, I just ask You, uh, help me to get through this in a way that penetrates hearts, and I can't do that. With my own wisdom, I, I can't do that in my own words. Only you can open up hearts today. And I pray that you would open our hearts and also you would engage our minds, that we would be disciplined in our thinking and that we would give energy to listening today and that we would try to grasp what it is that you're doing in your word and how false teaching can lead us away from a passion in a pursuit of lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May this even give us a reminder of the true meaning of Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at your notes. And we're looking at 
the hard question, is conscious faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? What about the untold billions who have never heard? There are billions of people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what about those people? They will live and they will die without ever hearing the name of Christ. Do they have to have conscious faith in Christ? And inclusivism, which tries to include as many people. Don't let that word scare you. Include as many people in salvation as possible. Inclusivism says, no, those who have never heard of Jesus, but sincerely respond in faith to God based on whatever light they have will be saved on the basis of the work of Christ, even though they've never heard of Christ. And we said there were four arguments. We looked at the first one, the four arguments that an inclusivist would make is, number one, the faith principle. The faith principle. And here's what they argue. We saw this last week. Sincerity of faith is acceptable to God for salvation when biblical content of faith is not available and accessible. So those billions of people who have never heard, they will be saved on the basis of a sincere faith in the light that they do have because they just don't have access to the gospel. How do they argue this? The inclusivists argue a general faith in a generic God is sufficient to save. We said they go to Hebrews 11.6. What's that say? It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him, God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. General faith, generic God. How did we answer that? Look at your notes. Exclusivist answer from the Bible, a specific faith in the particular person, the Lord Jesus Christ, is required to be saved. And you can see that simply in your Bibles. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Right after Hebrews 11, you see Hebrews chapter 12, and in verses 1 through 2, Here's, here's what the author of Hebrews goes on to say. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we going to do that? Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Jesus is the, the, the one who gives us faith. He's the one who completes our faith, and in between we look, in, uh, look unto Jesus. It's not a general faith. But really the verse that I want you to circle or jot down is Romans 10, 17. Because here in Romans 10, 17, the Bible tells us where faith comes from. Listen uh, as I read from the Net Bible, Romans 10, 17. Consequently, faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the preached word of Christ. Couldn't be any clearer. Where does faith come from? From what is heard. Listen to the NIV. Some of you have the NIV. Listen to how it translates this verse. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. So faith comes as a result of hearing the gospel... And the gospel is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith isn't this something that we have and we just kind of run, we're born with it and we kind of run around, well, I believe. 
I believe, I believe in God, I'm okay. No, faith is a result of the gospel being heard. And the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't, we, we, we saw that. I want, look in your notes. It says, do I think or act like an inclusivist in relation to saving faith? This is a great question. Ask yourself this. Have I lowered the standard of saving faith to a general faith in a generic God? I think sometimes we do when it comes to people we love. I think sometimes we do when we can't, when we don't know if someone has made a clear profession of faith and they're a good person and a religious person and a likable person. Will we lower the standard? And that's not ours to do. You say, well, then I don't know if they're saved. That's okay. We don't have to know if someone else is saved. Who needs to know that? Well, ultimately, God's the one that, that decides it. And, and that person is the one that needs to know it. We'll have to wait till heaven to find some of these things out. But the answer isn't to lower the standard of saving faith. Would you agree with that? Are you with me on that? All right. Well, let's take a look at the second, the second argument of an inclusivist. The reason they say you can be saved without knowing about Jesus is because they say that general revelation is sufficient. General revelation is sufficient to save. But we want to ask, or is it? Or is it? See, if you're not if you're not going to put your faith in Jesus, then who are you going to put your what are you going to put your faith in? What are you responding to? And they say the revelation that you're responding to is the revelation, uh, the general revelation of creation. Wow. Look at those stars, look at those mountains. Uh, look at my fingerprint that's unique. Look at the snowflakes that are so intricately designed. There must be a God. I believe in a God who created all this. Therefore, they are saved. That's what general revelation. Or your conscience. You ever, uh, early on in your life, and even now, you do something wrong, and, you, and, and, and inside, you feel a, your guilt. That's wrong. And you feel like there's someone, in, and of course, in cartoons, it's the little devil... And the little angel, that's the cartoonish uh, picture, right, of your conscience. Don't do it, Chris. Yeah, don't, you know, and of course, it, 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 and the little devil and the angel looks like you, right? Because they're, it's, and that's just a picture of the conscience, right? And your conscience is either saying, hey, you did good there, or your conscience is saying what? You did bad there, right? And so some people uh, would believe, well, hey, since, uh, since I, I'm responding, I know I did bad, I believe God's convicting me. Therefore, again, I'm saved. The conscience. Okay, well, let's turn your Bible, Psalm 19. Or here's what they argue. As you, here's what they say. The general revelation of creation, I've described that. Conscience, I've described that. Or even culture. In fact, some inclusivists would say even conflicting world religions. If you're a, a Muslim off in the deepest, darkest parts of India and you've never heard of Christ, but you see God in the Muslim faith, and you respond with sincerity to the message of Islam, you might still be saved. So this is what the inclusive, they're trying to include as many people. So even conflicting world religions. You know, Islam does not believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, but that's okay because if you respond to the good parts of it, 
you might still be saved. So even conflicting world religions is sufficient to save without, so that's what you want to fill in there, without hearing the gospel and placing one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn to Psalm 19 so you can see a little bit about general uh, revelation, see how it functions. Uh, Psalm 19, classic passage in the Old Testament that will kind of define for us what uh, general revelation is and, and what, can, what we should see from it. So Psalm 19, and let's look at verses 1 through 6. Notice what it says. The heavens declare what? They declare the glory of God. So we look at the heavens and we should see the glory of God. And truly we do. We are awe-inspired when we look at the heavens, the expanse of heaven. Uh, Shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. What he's saying is, 24-7, there's a revelation of the glory of God in the sun, the moon, the stars. Look at verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now, if you notice in your New King James that some of those words are in italics, that's because the translators are telling you, we put those in there to clarify. There's two ways to interpret this verse. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That understanding of that verse is saying, look, um, there's no place on this planet that you can't see the glory of God because the sun, the moon, the stars show it. There's other translations that take it this way. No, leave out the italicized words and it would just say like this. No speech nor language, their voice is not heard. The point being that general revelation is a proclamation of the glory of God without words. Do you see the difference in those? Some of you even see that in your text. So either way, the point's the same because look at verse 4. Their line has gone out through where? through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So, that's a great example of how you got two translations. They're basically, the differences are minor. They're saying basically the same thing, and it's this. When you look at the general revelation, you look at creation, glory of God is being proclaimed to all ends of the earth without language, without words. And yet we see the glory of God. All right, now we can go on, we could read more from that, but I want you to turn to Romans 1 now. So what is the world, what do we as humans do with general revelation? The inclusivist would want you to think that we look at the glory of God and we place a sincere faith in the God that we see in creation. Well, that sounds possible, doesn't it? And it sounds like it could happen. And it sounds reasonable and logical, except the Word of God says that that does not happen. And so when you turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we now see from God's inspired Word, what do people do with the glory of God that's proclaimed in creation? Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what with general revelation? They suppress the truth. Or literally, they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. So, they know the glory of God. 
they reject the glory of God and they hold down the truth that they know with their unrighteous living. Now look at this, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. God is witnessing to every person on this planet through creation, through conscience, and he's saying, I am a glorious, righteous God. You should worship me and give thanks to me. Now look at this, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, and consequently, what does it say? So that they are without what? They're without excuse. Why? Because they have heard about God and they've rejected what they've heard. They're not placing a generic faith in this creator God. They're saying, I don't want anything to do with him. In fact, I'm going to reject his truth and show it by the unrighteous way I'm living. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's the key verse, verse 23. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Now, a couple things here. What do, what, according to this verse, what do uh, we as lost people, what do lost people do with general revelation, according to this verse? They what? Yes, the number one, they suppress it. They know it and they suppress it. What's the second thing they do? They what? They exchange it. So let's use, since I like things beginning with the same letter, let's use substitute. Okay, that makes me feel much better. All right, they, they, they hold it down and they change it. They suppress it and substitute it. So rather than putting a faith in God, they say, oh, there, I see the glory of God. I'm going to hold that down and rebel against it. And then I'm going to substitute what I can't see for what I can see. And they worship rock, trees, descendants, people, stone. And here's what human reason thinks. Oh, there's, a very, there's someone seeking God. They're worshiping the Christmas tree over there. They, they, they don't know any better. They're ignorant. No, when I worship the Christmas tree, I'm saying, I know there's a God who made that tree who I can't see, and I don't want to be accountable to him, so I'm going to substitute the tree he made for the God who made it. That's what God says, and that's what's happening. Now, there's more that we can get into here, but... Let's see, let's see the, the argument here. The exclusivist answer from the Bible, we've kind of gotten ahead of myself. Romans 1 through 3 clearly teaches that the general revelation of creation and conscience is not sufficient to save. Instead, the lost suppress the truth and they substitute the lie. 
So what do they do with truth? We hold it down with our unrighteous living. What do we do with the lie or with the truth? We substitute it for the lie. And I've shown you that from verse 18, verse 23. Now drop down to verse 32. This is just how rebellious we are as sinners against general revelation. Notice what it says. Who knowing, after listing all these horrendous sins, which include homosexuality, lesbianism, but it's not just gross, perverse sexual immorality, but look at verses 29 through 31. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness. See, greedy people. Greed is a sin that suppresses the truth and substitutes God money for God. Uh, maliciousness. Bitterness of heart, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers. Just, just the way we use our mouth is a sin that rebels against God. Uh, proud boasters, haters of God, backbiters, violent, uh, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, just teenage rebellion, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, all those unwords. You know what that's saying? I don't have to go out and commit adultery. I don't have to be a homosexual. All I have to do is not be merciful, not be the positive things that God requires, just not be forgiving, just not be loving, and we've fallen short of what God expects. Now, notice the key in verse 32 who knowing the righteous judgment of God, I know I'm doing wrong. I know what I'm doing is wrong. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. I not only know what I'm doing is wrong, but I know that I deserve to die for it. So God is just in judging me in my rebellion. But notice, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So what do they do? They say, look... I know I'm doing wrong. I'm going to keep doing wrong. And by the way, would you all join me in doing wrong? Now, why would I want others to join me in doing wrong when I know I'm doing wrong? Do what? Do what? To make yourself feel better. better. Exactly. If we can get a big enough majority here, we can overthrow God. And it eases my conscience. And it gives me fellowship because i don't have fellowship with god when i'm in sin and so if i can party with my friends and sin with my friends and have them look approvingly on me then maybe for a moment i can find the acceptance the love and the closeness that i so desperately need that can only come from my creator and my redeemer now so the first argument against general revelation is nobody, nobody's responding to it positively. Okay, that's the first thing. Second of all, look in your notes. The content of biblical faith has always been progressively revealed by God through his redemptive plan. But the focus of that content has, not, has always been special revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what am I saying there? And I mean, it's getting into the third argument, but it's simply this. People don't look at general revelation and see Christ and then get saved. 
God has always saved people through special revelation that points to Christ. And so I gave you a chart there. We're not going to go deep into that. I just want you to realize that people have always been saved by special revelation. In the Old Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached. It was just preached as a promise of a coming Redeemer. God revealed and said, look, I'm going to send a Redeemer. Believe in my word, in my promise, and you will be saved. And so people would believe. They didn't know they were believing in Jesus, but they believed in the promised one who was coming. And then as you move through biblical history, there's more and more revelation. That's called progressive revelation. There's more and more revelation of who this person is. Now, let me show you the very first promise of his coming. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. And in a lot of ways, this Genesis 3.15 kind of shows you everything that I want to show you in today's lesson, to be quite honest with you. Adam and Eve. There's only two people on the planet. Adam and Eve. They choose to sin. Okay, this is Genesis 2. And then they sin. Genesis 3, uh, 3, right? Okay? They sin. And so there's a broken fellowship with God. So, now, in Gen- just turn back to Genesis uh, 3, uh, uh, 8, 3, 8. So they sin. Now, here they are in this beautiful creation that has not yet... Re- I mean, it, it's now under the curse of sin, but it hasn't been, uh, you know, really messed up by sin yet they don't look around and go wow you know god create well this is even a stupid illustration because they they god's already been talking to them they've been having fellowship with him okay but they're not looking at this creation and saying hey you know what he's a good guy we're just going to put our faith back in him where are they in genesis 3 you know they're not worshiping him they're they're not even worshiping the christmas tree they're hiding behind the christmas tree They're hiding from each other. They're hiding from God. And here's how salvation takes place, folks. Look at 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You know what they're doing? They're suppressing the truth. They're suppressing the truth. They know the truth and they're running from it. They don't run to it. Sinners don't run to God unless God calls them. It's really that simple. And look at verse 9. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, did God know where he was? Why is he saying that? Because he's drawing the sinner to himself. He's giving the sinner his gracious call. He's saying, look, I'm a great and holy God, but I love you. Where are you? Where are you? Where I seek you. You're not seeking me. I'm seeking you. And so they come out and they respond by faith in the word of God. Where are you? Here we are. And they respond by blame shifting and avoiding responsibility. And so God gives them a curse. But in that curse is the promise of the gospel. Look at Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent who is Satan. Between you and the woman, between your seed, the unbelieving seed who follow Satan 
and reject God and her seed, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What he's saying is that the seed is coming we now know is Jesus. And Satan will bruise his heel by, you know, a snake bites you where he can get you. And that's on his foot. But it won't be a deadly wound. But he will then take that foot. And if you've seen uh, the, uh, what's uh, Mel Gibson's thing? The Passion. It's a great picture of that in the Garden of Eden. Great, great picture of it. He crushes the head. Now, all that is, is a symbolic preaching of the gospel. On the cross, Satan wounded him seemingly for good, he kills him, puts him on the cross, but he resurrects, and when he resurrects, he crushes Satan's power. Now, all I'm trying to say is, is that's the beginning of the gospel. That's all they knew. They didn't know it was going to be Jesus. They didn't know it was going to be crucifixion. They don't know it's going to be during Roman periods. All they know is God's made a promise that there's going to be a a, a descendant of this woman who's going to have victory over Satan. That's all they know, but if they put their faith in that, will they be saved? Yes. How did they figure that out? From looking at creation, from general revelation, or from God's special revelation? Where did it come from? God's special revelation. Now, the rest of the Old Testament is simply progressively revealing that, hey, it's not only going to be a seed of woman, it's going to be a descendant of Noah. And it's not only going to be a descendant of Noah, it's going to be a descendant of Abraham. And it's not only going to be a descendant of Abraham, it's going to be a descendant of David. And you trace it on through until you come to Christmas. And you come to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it's traced from Adam through all those people to Jesus of Nazareth, who then fulfills all this progressive revelation. So here's my point. In the Old Testament, people are saved by God's grace through faith, in the progressive revelation, the promise of Christ. In the New Testament, we are saved by the same gospel, by the same grace, by the same faith, except now it's not this promise, it's the fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, you can read through that chart there. You can look at that more, but do you get the, do you get the picture? General revelation is not sufficient to save. We'll see more of that in a moment. Now, that brings us to argument number three. And I hope I haven't lost you. Argument number three. Old Testament holy pagans. Old Testament holy pagans provide a pattern for informational B.C. believers to be saved. Or does it? Now, this is where it gets weird. Now, listen, I I wish false teaching was simple, but then if it was simple, it'd be true teaching. False teaching gets complex because they're taking the truth and they're making subtle changes. So I blame any unclarity in this lesson on the false teachers and not on me. Now, notice what it says. Like some supposedly holy pagans in the Old Testament, people who are now informationally B.C., People who have never heard of Jesus or been exposed to special revelation can be saved through general revelation. Are you getting the picture or are you thoroughly confused? Here, right, look at it this way. You've got Christ who divides all the history. Am I right? And this is Old Testament time and this is New Testament time. Right? That's how your Bible's divided. That's how history is divided. A.D., B.C. Right? All right, now... Let's look at Old Testament believers. 
And we're not looking so much at Abraham and David. We're not looking at Old Testament believers who were a part of Israel. We're looking at Old Testament believers that had no, no supposed connection with Israel. That's why he calls them holy pagans. They're believers, but they're not associated yet with Israel because Israel always had special revelation. Well, they don't want to deal with special revelation. So let's look at, you know, people like Adam, Abel, Noah, uh, Job, uh, Jethro. These are all believers in the Old Testament. They're not associated directly with Israel. They're called holy pagans. Now, chronologically... Were they before Christ or after Christ? B.C., right? Informational. Informationally, were they before Christ or after Christ? Yeah, I mean, informationally. If you walked up to Noah and said, do you know who Jesus is? They, they say, Jesus who? You know, I mean, I don't know what he would say. They, they wouldn't know who Jesus was. He didn't believe in Jesus. He believed in the promise of one who ultimately became Jesus, okay? Now, here's what they're saying. Out there, those who have never heard of Christ, everyone today, are they chronologically B.C. or A.D.? They're what? They're A.D., yeah. We're, we, we're living historically. But people who have never heard of Christ could be considered what? Informationally. Right, you got it. Okay, at least one person. Do you see that? I mean, and that kind of logically makes good sense, doesn't it? I mean, you know, this is compelling. Hey, look, these guys are, you know, they're, they're like Job. They're like Noah. They're living in the time of Christ, but they've never heard of Christ. So their information. So here's the assumption that those who have never heard are in the same situation as Old Testament believers and therefore are saved in the same way without ever hearing without ever hearing of Christ. So see, here's the connection. This is not the connection. Are you with me? Now there's some assumptions in that. What's the assumption? Well, the assumption is that these dudes, and let's write some names down. Noah. Let's do Enoch. How about Rahab? There's a real pagan Gentile prostitute. Can't get any worse than all those things they, the Jew would think. All right. Now, here's the assumption that they're making. First of all, they're making the assumption that these folks were saved by general revelation and not special revelation. That's an assumption. Therefore, the assumption is, since they were saved that way, and these guys are in the same place informationally, they are saved the same way without knowing about Christ. Now, again, when you first look at that, it seems to make some sense, does it not? But what is the assumption? Well, I just told you what they were, but what, what, what are they? that these people were saved without special revelation. If that's proven false, then these people can't be saved without it. Plus, can you say that people in this time period are like people in this time period? No, you can't. You're ignoring an obvious... I mean, let me give me some red ink here. Is this no small thing? 
is Christmas. This is Christmas, folks. This is Christmas. Everything changed. Everything's changed. And God's revelation is now particular, specific, and final. And who are we to turn back the clock? Who are we to set back the calendar? Who are we to ignore Him who was born King of the Jews? Who wise men, pagan wise men, came from the east to worship? Who are we to set Him aside so that these can be saved according to our reasoning? Now, notice in your notes, I feel bad for inclusivists. They have great hearts and they want to be biblical, but they've come up with things that aren't biblical, and so that puts them in a bind. Look in your notes. One inclusivist lists 12 Old Testament people who were supposedly saved outside of Israel and without special revelation. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Job, Abimelech, Lot, Ruth, Naaman, Rahab, Queen of Sheba, Melchizedek, and Jethro. Wow, it seems overwhelming. But this same inclusivist admits that 10 of the 12 had some sort of exposure to God's people in special revelation. That only leaves two guys in the whole Bible. Melchizedek and Jethro are the only two. And guess what? There is simply no, no information on how they were saved. Were they saved? Without a doubt. Do we know how they were saved? No. Now, if everybody else except two dudes we're saved by special revelation, what would be the safest speculation if we're going to speculate how these two guys were saved? Well, no, says an inclusivist. Let's speculate general revelation because that fits my argument. But it doesn't fit the scriptures. Are you with me? If you've got only two guys who are saved, and we don't know how, if we're going to speculate, and I would say it's better not to speculate, why should we not speculate? Because God didn't give us the information. And if God didn't give us the information, that's not what we should be focusing on. What should we be focusing on? All these Old Testament people who were saved by a special revelation of a coming Redeemer who was Jesus Christ. All right? Now... If you go down through this, well, here's another problem with their argument. There's two kinds. There's two kinds of saved people. If you buy into this argument, you've got two kinds of saved people. You've got people who have heard of Christ, who are Christians. And then you have these people who have not heard of Christ, but who are saved, who are believers. Now, that presents a problem for New Testament revelation, and why is that? Because in the New Testament, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit and you're placed into the body of Christ. Well, they have not received Christ. They do not have the indwelling Spirit, and they are not a part of the body of Christ. So now you have two kinds of... I mean, you have weirdness in a dispensation that is predominant with the Spirit and with the body of Christ. Now, let's say you say, well, no, they do get the Spirit. They don't have Christ. Now you've got the Holy Spirit indwelling people apart from the Word of Christ. That's nowhere in the Bible. In fact, Jesus said in the upper room, the Spirit will always witness of me. He will always glorify me. 
Plus, if you have the Spirit placing people in the body of Christ apart from Christ, first of all, just think it through that. Now you've got people that are in the body of Christ with us believers, but they don't know it. It just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Can I hear an amen? All right, even if you don't understand what's going on. Now, what that means is, now listen, they say, now first of all, if all this exists, why missions? Why missions? I mean, this basically covers everybody. Hey, I look at the stars, I hear my conscience, I look at some false religions, I see God in them. That means practically everybody's saved as a believer, and they say, oh no, you still need missions so that they can believe again in Christ and become full-fledged Christians. Oh, okay, that's nice. Christianity is a second blessing. You're saved, and then if you really want to get on the good stuff, throw Jesus in, okay, and become a Christian. It's craziness. Okay, here's how inclusivists answer from the Bible. First of all, number one, making two kinds of believers in this present age is an attempt to turn back time, creates all kinds of problems regarding the body of Christ and the indwelling spirit. I've given you verses from Corinthians and Ephesians. Ephesians 4 says there's one body, one Lord, one spirit, one God, and they've got two. Okay? Secondly, there is not a single, single clear example in either the Old Testament or the New Testament of anyone being saved apart from special revelation. There's just not an example. And and I wanted to do this last week, and we're not going to do it again this week. But I'm telling you, we'll see, maybe I might incorporate it next week. You can just go from Genesis all the way through. And you can see how God gives special revelation to every person who's saved. And let, I'll just give you this one example. Think of Noah. The world is so sinful. They're not responding to a general God with a, with a, with a generic faith. They're, they're not doing that. They're, they are so sinful, God is going to scrap it and start over. So guess who he tells? One man out of a whole planet, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Special revelation. Noah, here's my promise to you. Build this ark, and everyone who gets in that ark will be saved. Special revelation. You say, who's the ark in the New Testament? The ark is Jesus Christ. It's pointing to Christ. They don't know it. God has made a promise. That promise is in Christ. They don't know it. It's the ark. They believe the word, and they enter in. Guess who goes in? How many go in? Eight people out of the whole population at that time. Is God an inclusive God or an exclusive God? Exclusive. Now, for 120 years, it is believed that he worked on that ark and he preached righteousness. He proclaimed the gospel. Now, do you think he got to every... Do you think every person in Noah's time heard? No. Just like now, not everybody hears. But everybody had general revelation, and they were suppressing that in unrighteousness. They were judged on the light that they had. They rejected the light they have. God gave extra light through Noah to some. And how many responded who even heard? Only eight. Noah's family in the whole planet. And Listen, that's the message of the gospel. 
that we are unrighteous, God is righteous and gracious, and we reject his general revelation and most reject special revelation, and only those who put their faith in the promise will be saved. So that brings us to the last argument, and it's this. Exclusivists make exceptions for babies and those incapable of understanding the gospel so more exceptions should be made or should they now this is a interesting argument but we can dismiss it rather quickly inclusivists argue, argue since many and i would even say most exclusivists make an exception for infants who die you know uh, at birth or even before birth infants in the mentally challenged why is this gracious exception limited to only them and not applied to all who die without being able to hear and make a decision? Now, that's a, that's a good argument, is it not? That's a good argument. It's a fair, it's a fair question, but it, it has a fair answer. Exclusivist answer from the Bible. Comparing those who have never heard of Christ to infants and the mentally challenged is like comparing apples and oranges. You're talking about two totally different categories of people. Let me show you. Here's the comparison questions. One column, you have infants in the mentally challenged. The other column, you have these billions in all ages who have never heard. Now, here's the questions. Bo- are, they, are they born sinners and deserving of God's eternal wrath? Infants in mentally challenged? Yes. 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 What about those who have never heard? Yes. Okay. Able to know. Are uh, infants and mentally challenged able to know the gospel? No. Are those who have never heard? Yes. What about understanding what they know? Do they understand what they hear, infants and mentally challenged? No. What about those who have never heard? Yes. What about able to respond? Once they hear and understand it, are they able to exercise faith and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? No, for infants and mentally challenged. What about those who've never heard? Yes, if they would hear, they could respond. What about actively rejected the light they have received? Actively rejected that which God has shown. He may have not shown them Christ yet, but he's shown himself as great. Are they able to respond? Infants and mentally challenged. No, Uh, those who have never heard. Yes. So out of all those questions, are these the same categories? No, those are apples and oranges. They have one thing in common. They're all born sinners deserving of going to hell. Listen, every infant who has ever been born and has ever died deserved to split hell wide open. And I say it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a very plain manner because we have to sift through our human sentimentality. Every Infant that is born deserves to split hell wide open because they have Adam's sin, Adam's unbelief. And if Adam deserved to go to hell, all his descendants deserve to go to hell because in him we did what he did and we rejected God. But notice they're not able to know, they're not able to understand, they're not able to respond, and they have not actively rejected that which they have received because they haven't received anything that they can fully understand. Now, taking the situation of babies and applying it to grown adults all around the world is quite a stretch. The adults are suppressing, substituting, rejecting, and actively sinning against God. Infants in the mentally challenged are sinners 
but they just don't, they're, they're incapable of acting on it. They're incapable of receiving him. Okay, big difference. Now, let me throw in, let me throw in one, one thing, then, then we'll close. Just because, well, I'm not even, even going to go there. I just will throw out this. John the Baptist was in the womb of his mother, and he heard the voice of Mary, and in the spirit he leapt with joy. And all I'm saying is there are some theologians look at that and say, look, just because babies and mentally handicapped cannot have the logical and mental facility, uh, faculties to respond, that doesn't mean that they may be incapable of, of, of knowing God and responding to Him. So for all we know, and this is pure speculation beyond Scripture, for all we know, God could still be presenting himself or even Christ to infants in the mentally handicapped, and they may be responding positively or negatively, and we just don't know, we just don't know it, and we're, and we're not supposed to know it because God hadn't told us. Okay, now let me say this, and I want to end with this. While the Bible is virtually silent on the salvation of infants and the mentally challenged, it speaks very clearly to the state and the fate of those who have never heard. You've got to get that. While the Bible is virtually silent on the salvation of infants. This is not a lesson on the salvation of infants. I just want to show you they are not in the same category of those who have never heard. And the Bible is virtually silent or we wouldn't have this question about it. But what it, the Bible is not silent about is the fate of those who have never heard. Their state and their fate. Now, let me just end with this. Why is the Bible practically silent on eternal destiny of infants, but so clear on the eternal destiny of those who have never heard and adults in general? This is a key question. And the reason is this. Because the eternal destiny of infants who have died is already settled. That's been that's settled. We have no accountability or responsibility with that. It is settled. How is it settled? The Bible is almost silent. All I know is this. Their destiny rests in a God who is a just judge and who gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. He has the heart of a loving father and the judgment rests in his son who gave his own life and endured separation from his father to save us. So, listen, the destiny of infants are in good hands. Are they saved or not? I just need to know in whose hands their destiny lies. Because ultimately, I can't do anything about their destiny. But guess what is clearly revealed? The destiny of those I can do something about. The destiny of those who can choose to be saved. And so here's my point. If we would get as emotionally involved in the question of the destiny of the lost people around us as we get emotionally involved in the destiny of infants, there would be a lot fewer people who had never heard and a lot more people in the kingdom of God. I'm not lessening for some of you the emotional pain of miscarriages and abortions. That's real. But the destiny of those children has already been determined and you can't change it one way or the other.
So you take that emotion, you take that passion, you take that burden and get it on the lost people that Christ died for. And you take that emotion and you move it. And God forbid there are some of us here who have not shared the gospel even one time in the last two years. Some of you have not taken an active step, one single active step to witness to a lost person in more than two years. And I hope you're getting motivated to change that. Because God wants to use you to change the destinies of those who can still choose. And listen, if that just judge and that caring father and that loving son who gave his life wants to save adults as badly as he wants to save infants. The question is, do we want to? it that badly let's pray father i I just pray that uh, you would challenge us that this doesn't happen by chance it happens through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel and god there's some here who, who who have a burden for lost children that have died and that's real and we pray that the holy spirit would comfort them but those destinies are sealed and they're in your hands and we take comfort in that But, Lord, let that burden, that passion, that desire to be united, that desire for salvation from hell, let it be transferred onto those that we work with, that we live by, that we see every day. And, Lord, give us a burden and the love and the passion to share with them because we can make a difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.